as a country, we are approaching very strategic times to choose a man who will lead this land. How should we choose? Based on what criteria should we choose? Now, I've been a citizen of this country and going through three elections now. And my observations about the way the American people elect presidents are the following. We typically choose based on political lo loyalties we already have. Or, if that's not going to work, based on how presentable or how appealing the, pro the promises of the candidate are. But I wonder how many take a serious look at a man's character and beliefs as they think about voting. While it's important for us to think carefully about how we choose who to support in the upcoming elections, this morning I want to begin addressing a different type of leadership, church leadership. How do we choose it? Who should lead the church? Is it those who are loyal to our views? Is it those who belong to our party? Is it those who have been successful in the past in growing the church? Is it those who make lots of promises of what changes they will do if they are chosen? Or lack of changes if they're chosen? Is it those who are well known in the community? Who should lead the church? Now please understand, I'm not talking here about choosing a new pastor. This choir did not come here to take me home to Romania. I have no plans of going anywhere. And unless the Lord makes clear that he's giving me another assignment, I am committed to the word God has entrusted to me in this place. But don't think the sermon is just for pastor search committees. It is for all of us to help us think through the notion of who should be the spiritual leaders of the church. Now we are in sermon seven of our series through 1 Timothy, a series of sermons entitled, God's House, God's Rules. Because the church is God's house, he gets to make the rules. We are members of his house. We belong to the house, but we don't get to make the rules. God does. Why? Because it's his house. We may not like it, but that's okay. It's not our house. Now, when it comes to church leadership, this is one of the areas in which we most often show our personality in who we select to lead us. Who would we like to lead us in the church? In most Baptist churches, the pastor is the official leading figure of the church. However, in reality, unofficially, what happens in most Baptist churches is that the deacon body is a second governing body, creating a checks and balances for the pastor and the deacon body. In most Baptist churches, that relationship works well. In some, it does not. And it's oftentimes a show to see what happens in those two governing bodies. Now, in most Baptist churches, the deacon body is viewed as a long-term stable leadership. 
primarily because it's formed of lay leaders of the congregation, men who are not going anywhere. The pastor came, and he's going to leave. But typically, the, the lay leaders are those who form typically deacon bodies. Uh, they are here to stay. They provide the stability, long-term leadership of the church. Now, some churches may not like the notion of, of deacons serving, deacon bodies serving as, with that kind of spiritual leadership role. So they think about another category. They call it church council. So deacons serve, and then it's a pastor and the church council who lead the church. Friends, reality is that both of these labels are unfaithful in providing the clear scriptural description of who should lead the church. They're not very good labels for those who ought to call and lead the church spiritually. And yet, I believe that Scripture strongly supports a plurality of spiritual leadership in every local church. I actually think if I were to compare it between the two aspects and options, I think it would be better to have the presence of a plurality of spiritual leaders, even though the labels might be wrong. Now, in the long run, correcting these labels would be very advisable and healthy. But I do think that God has gifted every church with spiritual leadership. And while the pastor is the official leader, there are other lay spiritual leaders in the congregation that provide the long-term stability for that church. So if the church is to be led not just by the vocational pastor, but by a plurality of spiritual leaders, no matter what we call them, we'll talk about that later, both vocational and lay leaders from the congregation, how should we look up for these men? Who's suited to lead in this role? Well, today we are talking about church leadership tryouts. That's a subject of my sermon this morning, church leadership tryouts, part one. I encourage you to open scripture to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are on sermon 7 in the series. Because it's the first time in my pastorate here that I am addressing you uh, about issues related to church leadership, I felt compelled to split the sermon again for the second time in two parts. So that today we will merely introduce a topic and then delve into each of these qualifications next week. Let's look at the word of the Lord for us, for his church, as we think clearly about who should lead the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're having one of the Bibles providing the pew, you may find this passage on page 1029. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. This was the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's submit to it. Let's ask God to speak to us, to his church. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, you reign. Everything is subjected to you. And this morning we pray and desire that even this word that we have heard 
in our years would penetrate, would encourage, would correct, would rebuke. Father, we desire to adopt a biblical version of what it means to lead your church. And Father, we submit ourselves to you and ask through the Holy Spirit that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts. Amen. Well, last week, we saw how our submission to God is rooted in worship. According to the Bible, worship, or worship of God, is to submit to God. Yet submission to God always takes on concrete, actual acts of submission to God's agents. We may be okay with the notion of submitting to God as long as no human beings interfere in that process. But guess what? God loves to make our submission to Him very concrete, very real-life situations, so that God puts agents of authority in our lives to which we must submit. And our worship and submission to God is reflected by the nature and the way we actually submit to these physical agents. So God puts the government over us. And the way we submit to the government is a reflection of whether or not we actually submit to God, assuming that the government does not ask us to do stuff against God's word. God also puts parents to be agents of authority in the lives of children. Children, you worship God, you submit to God to the degree that you submit to your parents. God made husbands to be the authority figure for the wives. And God made men to be the spiritual leaders of the churches, even over women. Now, we may not like that. If you have a hard time with this concept, if this is new to you this morning, if you're a visitor and you're checking us off for the first time and this is just brand new, it may scare you off. I encourage you, go back to last week's sermon. It's on the web. You may find out I explained very carefully why the notion of submitting to certain physical authority figures is a way that we actually show our worship of God. But this morning, I want to talk about how we should submit to the spiritual leadership of the church. Ladies, I want to speak to you something about last week, something I mentioned in passing. I mentioned last week that it's not simply that God set up the authority structures in the church in a way that he limits you from those authority structures, but he also limits a bunch of other men. Don't think that this is just a gender issue. It is that, but it's way more than that. In God's wisdom, in, he had limited the role of spiritual authority to be held not by women, nor by men in general, but by, but by a subset of men, namely by spiritual men. So the entire church should discover the beauty of submitting to God and worshiping God by submitting to the spiritual leadership that God places in every church. Friends, the greatest responsibility each local church has is to identify who are the men whom God has called to provide the spiritual leadership for that church. And once they have been affirmed, the church is called to follow. So the question is, who qualifies for leading the church spiritually? How should a church think about selecting its spiritual leaders? Well, I'll, I'll talk about three brief points today. Church leadership structures and labels will be my first point. And this one, I'll talk a little bit about a history of the church and about a few other passages from Scripture. So I will not base my first point on the passage we just read. But then points two and three will come specifically out of the text. 
the goodness of aspiring for the task of overseeing. That'll be the second point. And thirdly, the overarching qualification for spiritual leadership. Three points. Church leadership structures and labels. The goodness of aspiring for the task of overseeing. And thirdly, the overarching qualification for spiritual leadership. Before we look at the qualifications, I'd like to give you a glimpse of the major church leadership structures across denominations and across the history of the church. There are three major government structures in the church. One is the Episcopalian model or the Episcopalian polity. Uh, this is where the one person called the overseer or the bishop or the, in the Greek, the episkopos, he has an, under his care and authority a number of churches of which they're led by a pastor. All of those churches are led by a pastor, but the authority in the church is neither the pastor nor the congregation, but this episkopos, this overseer, this manager, this bishop. That's one model. The second model is the Presbyterian model. Uh, the presbytery is formed of elders from different churches who together have authority over those churches. So that it's not simply the elders of one church that have authority over that church, or not even the church itself, the members of the church having authority over that church, but it's a group of local elders and outside elders who have authority over that church and over others. That's a presbytery. That's the Presbyterian model. And then we get the congregational model. This is the one we like. This is ours. The authority in the congregational model, the ultimate authority, is the church, the gathered saints, the people gathered for worship, the people gathered in the church body meetings. Now, each congregation will have either a pastor and deacons, or a pastor and a church council, or a, pa or a plurality of elders who will lead that church. But none of them will have the final authority. O only the congregation gathered, the church body meetings, have the final authority. That's the congregational model. Now, I'm convinced based on Matthew 18, Galatians 1, and a number of other passages that the ultimate, or the, the, the ultimate human form of authority in the local church, I'm talking about the human form of that authority, not God, but the human form, is neither the Episcopalian model nor the Presbyterian model, but the gathered saints of each local congregation, the members of the church. That's why we as Baptists historically have been congregational. Now even though the congregational form of church government seems closer to us um, and we like it, oftentimes we like it just because it's a democracy and we like democracy. And this is where scripture has to correct us. Even though the congregational form of church government looks very closely to a democracy, it is not a democracy. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of each local church. And his reign is mediated, first of all, through his word preached and followed. Yet submission to Christ is made visible by submitting to the spiritual leaders that Christ gives his church. Now, the, the church is called to affirm this leadership. Uh, who will lead the congregation, the people who will lead the congregation? But friends, here's where the church is not a democracy. The authority of those spiritual leaders does not arise from the congregation. It's not like we empower the spiritual leaders to lead us. We have chosen you, now lead us. This is where 
church government in, in the aspect of congregationalism breaks down from, from the American ideal of, of democracy. The power given to the church leaders does not arise from the people of the church, but from Christ. The church does not empower its pastors to lead. Christ empowers them to lead. And the church is called to affirm and recognize le the leadership of Christ over that church by affirming the leadership of those spiritual leaders in the church. Do you understand this? Congregationalism looks like a democracy, but it's not. It is really a theocracy. So, friends, congregational polity does not mean that everyone gets to say what they want. Sometimes Baptists think about the notion of how are we different than other denominations. Well, everybody gets a vote. Everybody gets to say what they want. Well, it's not really accurate. A true church is formed of members who in their lives and in their decisions always seek the will of God. And in, in the way they do church government and the life of the church, they're always about not what I want and about what I desire, but about everyone seeking the Lord's desire for that church. When the New Testament speaks about spiritual leaders in the church, there are three words that are used often, and they're used interchangeably. Shepherds or pastors, overseers or bishops, and elders. Now, all three are used interchangeably. Look at a few examples with me. You don't have to turn there, just listen. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Be shepherds, serve as overseers. Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. A few verses later, in verse 28, Paul says, Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So here we see in, this, in Acts 20, the words elders, shepherds, and overseers used interchangeably for the same role. Then we see Titus 1.5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might strengthen out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And certainly in our passage that we read in 1 Timothy 3, Paul says here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer. The reason why I point this out to you, friends, is because these days, even in Baptist life, there is often a distinction. Well, should we use the word pastor or elders in our churches? Both. They're referring to both positions, to, to both labels. We should also use them as overseers and bishops. Because that's the way Scripture talks about the label of spiritual authority. So the beyond shadow of a doubt that when the New Testament refers to the office of spiritual leaders, it uses these terms, pastor slash shepherd, overseer slash bishop, or elder interchangeably. Now the question that caused more heat than light um, in these days has been this. Should the church have only one pastor, overseer, or elder, or more, multiple, plurality? And this is not just a question about vocational pastors in the sense that uh, should the church hire a second pastor, an associate pastor? The New Testament attests to the practice of a church having a plurality of spiritual leaders who together, work together in shepherding the church. Now in the last few decades, 
This plurality of shepherding in most Baptist churches has fallen on the lap of the pastor assisted by the deacon body. Now, even though I'm officially the only recognized elder or bishop, I, I like that term. Just call me bishop once in a while. Unofficially, the deacons have helped me in that role tremendously by providing the spiritual leadership for our church. Now, here's why you, as members of the church, and even if you're a visitor, why you need to listen and hear this message today and tomorrow, I mean, and next week, uh, and in the next few weeks. Even though you may not be a deacon, even though you may not be an overseer, even though you may never aspire to be one. We are at a stage in the life of our church when we need to ask God to reveal to us who are some of the men that would step up to lead us spiritually. The deacons and I are working through that, and we pray that God would raise up more men in our deacon body. Now, I'm not talking here about just hiring an associate pastor, but lay shepherds who are already part of the congregation. Because the deacon body at Park Hills assists me in shepherding the body, when we look at selecting new deacons, we should not look only at the qualifications for the deacon body. But we should look carefully at the list Paul gives to those who oversee. Friends, the ability of the congregation to recognize who are its spiritual leaders is an incredibly important ability. As a matter of fact, let me ask you, do you know how to recognize spiritual maturity in others? Do you know what you should look for to assess whether or not somebody is a spiritually mature person? Do we as a congregation want to promote men who are spiritually mature or simply who are men who are successful? I pray that we would learn from Scripture what to look for. My friends, the church's ability to recognize and affirm spiritual leaders speaks greatly about the church's spiritual maturity. Look at the leaders they appoint, and you can get a sense of the kind of spiritual level that exists in that church. Having looked at the overall leadership structure and labels, I want to look briefly at the goodness of aspiring for the task of overseeing. The goodness of aspiring for the task of overseeing. Look at verse 1. Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying. Now, this is the second time in this passage when this phrase shows up. Uh, earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul gave a summary of the gospel. And he said, here is a trustworthy saying. Uh, this phrase will appear three more times in the pastoral letters. It was an important phrase. It, it gave the indication that Paul is going to say something very important. Listen up. The second time he does it, he says the following. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the Greek literally means he desires a good work. First of all, please do not assume that Paul is talking here about vocational ministry. Desiring to be an overseer does not mean that now a person is willing to leave their career in order to work for the church. Being or becoming an overseer in the church of God is not about changing employment. It goes way deeper than that. Second, please do not assume of this overseer position as a high position in the corporate ladder of the church life. So that becoming an overseer is like getting a promotion. We should not think of that. 
the ESV interprets this text as if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. While it's true that the role of overseer is, is developed into an authoritative spiritual role, it is also true that aspiring to be an overseer is not about aspiring for a position or for the office. I'm running for office or for a status. It is more about desiring or aspiring to do the work of overseeing. I want to clarify this because we have so misconstrued the notion of church offices as if they are a status we reach, like getting and reaching silver medallion status or gold medallion status or platinum status at American Express. Friends, occasionally I hear Christians talk about the church offices as if it's reaching a status which they want to aspire to get so that no matter where they move, they take that status with them. I had a friend a few years ago. He was thinking about moving from one city to another. And um, he really was hoping that the church would ordain him before he left. I said, why? Well, because I, I want to be ordained. Ordained for what? You're leaving. Oftentimes we think about getting the status. And the work of the overseer is not about a status. It's not about an office. It is about the work of actually overseeing, spiritual oversight. The text tells us that desiring to be an overseer is good. It's not because, it doesn't tell us why it's good. Definitely it's not because it makes you be the boss. It's definitely not because it gives you the final word. It's definitely not because it makes you be in charge. Those are worldly ways why we would desire to be an overseer. The reason why we should desire and we should aspire for doing the work of overseeing is because it's about watching out for people's spiritual health. That's the work of overseeing. That's why it's noble, because it encourages us, it gives us a challenge to actually watch over one another and make sure that we're healthy spiritually. That's why it's a noble work. Now, the part of overseeing is also to fight against false teaching, to fight against false teachers who compromise the gospel. This is hard work. This is painful work. Part of overseeing is sitting in, in pastor and deacon meetings and talking about a member who is consistently living in open disobedience to God's word. And we pray and ask for ways in which how can we as leadership of the church care for that sheep so that sheep would not stay in stubborn, unrepentant sin, but we would seek to come and heal and discipline and correct and try to restore that sheep. That's, a that's part of what we do here at Park Hills. It's a significant part of what the church leadership does here. We care, we watch over you, over the spiritual journey that you engage in. And when we see traps coming your way, we try to help you avoid them, try to help you see that you're in one and get out of it. That's why it's noble work, because we watch over the spiritual health of one another. Another reason why it's a noble work is not given in this passage, it's given somewhere else in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 to 25, and actually this reason is so beautiful because it connects us to what's, what, what's happening right here with the Lord's Supper. Peter says, He, Christ, committed no sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, 
you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The reason, the second reason why overseeing is a noble task is because Christ, our shepherd, he is himself our overseer. Christ has defined for us the role of overseeing for our souls, and he has entrusted that role of overseeing to faithful men who shepherd God's flock. Friends, I will let for next week to talk about, to really get into the qualifications of what it means to qualify for this role of overseeing. But I want us to pause and reflect. I want us to pause and reflect this morning at the great reality, the great opportunity, the great wisdom of God who has set up overseers in the church to be physical, concrete, real people who actually would exercise the authority of God in the life of the congregation. Not because the authority is in them as people, not because the authority is even in their position, but because the authority is a delegated authority of Christ who has empowered these people to lead the congregation and to shepherd them. Friends, Parkless Baptist Church, as we think and pray that God would raise up godly leaders to lead our congregation, I pray, I ask, I challenge you. Let's think not simply through issues like who is the most faithful in what he does, and we need to reward him. Oftentimes, I've heard people choose people to offices of leadership because they've been so faithful and they sort of need to be rewarded for it. Folks, being, a, being challenged and being affirmed and selected for church leadership is not about getting a reward. It's about getting a job. It's about getting a, a task, a, an important task. Others think about appointing people in the church leadership positions who have certain skills. And if they have certain skills, they must qualify to lead certain things in the life of the church. That is so unbiblical, friends. The first thing we should look at is their character. The first we thing we should look at is the biblical qualifications. And by God's grace, next week and the next few weeks, we will be looking at these. Friends, if you're visiting us this morning, you're not a Christian, and this whole talk about church government, this whole talk about qualifying for leading in a certain way may seem very off the wall to you. I want to make sure you understand why church leaders are supposed to be in certain ways, above reproach, and we'll look at the qualifications next week. It's not because they have to perform to be a certain way. It's because everything we do, the fact that we should live, fight sin off, the fact that we should live in a certain way is not to please God or to gain his favor. It is because we have gained his favor through the cross of Christ. And our submission to God and our response and obedience to God is simply because God has done it all for us and therefore now we respond out of gratitude. Dear friend, if you don't know Jesus, I pray. I pray that you would understand the gospel that puts the whole focus, the spotlight on what Christ has done for us. And our response is merely a gratitude back to God for what he has done. If you'd like to know more about this gospel, about how God changes us from the inside, I encourage you to come and talk to me at the end of the service. But now in the next few moments, we will pause and reflect on what Jesus has done for us. In the cross of Christ, friends, Jesus had paid it all for us. He's not only been our shepherd, he's our overseer. And when we partake of this supper, 
we think not only of, of his sacrifice for us, but of the fact that he continues to lead us, to lead us, to shepherd us, to watch us. He wants us to live in a light that reflects God's glory and gospel. Let's pray.